Hi, everyone. This is Jill Riddell, host of The Shape of the World. I'm so excited to begin the third season of our podcast. Before we start the first episode, I want to share with you some good news. Both The Shape of the World and the Office of Modern Composition, which produces this podcast, are now carbon neutral. That's to say we've taken steps to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we emit in making this show, and we have offset the remainder by purchasing a carbon offset from Tradewater. Tradewater fights climate change by collecting and destroying the most powerful greenhouse gases in the world, some of which are 10,000 times more potent and destructive of the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. You can find information about all this on our website. Now, on to the show. My father, Jack Riddell, was a geologist. As a side gig, he wrote jokes for comedians. And I think his two passions of geology and comedy were not unrelated. There's something about the study of geology, about understanding how far back the Earth's history goes and how the Earth will far outlast our own lifetimes, that is kind of funny. Most of humor is about puncturing one's sense of self-importance. From the inside, your own lifespan feels so important and so long because it has gone on for years and years, and we can get quite puffed up about that. But then when you look at the bigger picture, the geological picture, the real picture, and all of our everyday annoyances and existential worries about aging start to seem absurd, even sweet in a way, and yes, funny. I'm Jill Riddell. Welcome to The Shape of the World. Geologists are people who don't ignore time and its passage. The inconvenience of time is something geologists stare straight in the face. They get to know it, enjoy it, and respect it. I'm Marsha Bjornrud. I'm professor of geosciences and environmental studies at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. Dr. Bjornrud is the author of two books, Reading the Rocks, an Autobiography of the Earth, and Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. In the middle of studying rock deformation and how mountains grow in response to tectonic events, Marsha also finds time to write popular essays for The New Yorker. Marsha, how do you describe geology? What is it that geologists are interested in? Well, as a geologist, I live in time. I think about what the Earth text is telling us about how things came to be. To me, geology is really nothing short of the etymology of the world. It tells us how things arrived at the status that they are today. And for me, that's something that's comforting and enlightening. It enriches my everyday life. So in your book, you use the phrase deep time. What do you mean by deep time? Well, I should give credit for that term to John McPhee, a great essayist, and although he's not a geologist, a great writer about geology. The idea of deep time is time well before human experience, and yet it's accessible through the rock record. Geologists have adopted that term because it really does evoke our sense that time is another dimension. It's got some kind of geography to it. When I think about geologic time, it's not an abstraction. I have a very tangible sense of the 
almost the culture of a, of a time in the past. I can almost smell it. Is there a corollary to deep time? Is there shallow time? Yes. I mean, I think most people exist in rather shallow time. So shallow time is the type of time we experience in everyday life. It's the way we typically relate to time. Yes, and shallow time is forgetting that we exist along a continuum with earlier human cultures and natural histories that are still very much present in the landscape around us. It's, it's a kind of blindness to the passage of time and the persistence of the past in landscapes or architecture around us. Has there ever been a study of geologic literacy? For example, do you know like, what percentage of people know the age of the Earth, if asked? That's a good question. I imagine that there have been studies like that. In my experience as someone who teaches geology at the college level, even students who are very well prepared in our elite high schools often have shockingly little knowledge of geology. It's really not represented in most high school curricula. There is no AP test in geology. And so I would say we have widespread geologic illiteracy in our culture. I'm guessing some listeners are thinking to themselves, I wonder where I stand. Am I geologically literate? So those of you listening, take a minute and see if you can remember the age of the Earth. I'm going to pause long enough for you to search your mind, but not the Internet. So what's the correct answer? How old is the Earth, Marcia? It's 4.55 billion years old. And that's a date that was determined with fairly high precision about 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, in the mid-50s. And there have been some refinements to it, but that we we've, we've, haven't revised that date too much. And, of course, it's not just the age of the Earth. It's the age of the solar system and the sun and everything in our neighborhood. And why is it important that we know that? We all need a better sense of temporal proportion. If we're talking about environmental change. It's important to understand how, in the absence of human activity, natural systems evolve and change. Otherwise, we have no benchmark against which to compare anthropogenic changes. So it's a practical reason, really. There's the pragmatic part that has to do with understanding the environment, extracting resources. I think that there's also a spiritual aspect to geology, but there's also this philosophical or deeper existential part of geology. And to me, it is important to understand the characteristic lengths of natural systems, lifetimes, supercontinents, <laughs> um, mountain ranges, not just human lifespans. These are very different kinds of time spans that we should be aware of as residents of this earth. Do you remember the first time you started to have a concept of that? I'm thinking as you're speaking, even a thousand years is pretty hard to wrap our minds around, not impossible. But I've noticed when I talk to my students about glaciers having been 10,000 years ago, and I know how recent that is um, compared to the age of the earth and to compared to the age at which other things have happened, it's just a blink of an eye. How did you develop an aptitude to think that way? Or what was the first time that you suddenly felt like that cracked open in your mind that you could start to imagine deep time? 
I think it's one of these things that you develop through exposure. I'm not sure I can point to a particular epiphany. And I can't say that I or any geologist really understands what a billion years means. But when you immerse yourself in the story of the Earth and start understanding um, particular rock sequences and what they signify, and then you learn the stories of others, and then you build these together into the longer and longer story, you can start getting some glimpse of these vast expanses. But it's something that takes persistence and repetition and exposure over a long period of time to really internalize it. At some point, maybe in my mid-30s, it became not only an intellectual pursuit, but something like a kind of personal worldview. Hmm. And I think that can only happen when you've been around rocks long enough that you've really begun to internalize their messages. And to explain them to others. I think sometimes when we're trying to convey it to someone else, it makes us think more deeply about the subject. Absolutely. My teaching is certainly a big part of my writing. I've understood better what is difficult for people to understand through my my college-level teaching and also teaching in elder hostel-type settings. I see that there really is an appetite that people have to filter out what is ephemeral and what is eternal. They want to see something that is longer-lasting and understand and have a connection with that. So in this book, you coin the term timefulness. What do you mean by timefulness? It's an antonym to timelessness, which we think of as something we might want to aspire to. We want to be outside time. We want things to be eternal and ever unchanging. And that is a false and, again, maybe dangerous thing to aspire to because things do change. Nothing is outside time. And if we deny time, we also miss the beauty of how things have been shaped, whether it's organisms by evolution or landscapes by gradual geologic processes or people by the experiences that have shaped them. Everything is full of time. And so that's timefulness. Being aware of time. Mm -hmm. And accepting it, mm -hmm. not being afraid of it. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? You use the term chronophobia in the book. And how does that show up, our fear of time? What are some other things that you've observed about how it is that we fear time, deny time? It can be from the individual level. It's very natural that we fear our own mortality and the, and the potential for losing loved ones. Um, we don't like the thought of becoming older and frail. But as a society, that's where the danger is in denying the reality that our behavior now is going to cast long shadows into the future, our inability as a society through the economic system or the political system to make decisions for anything beyond even a couple of years is really a tragedy. We're a scientifically sophisticated society, and yet we cannot seem to plan over even a decadal sort of timescale. I loved your mention in the book of the concept that every president ought to have a secretary of the future. That's Kurt Vonnegut. I can't take credit for that. But absolutely, how different it would be if there was someone who was constantly reminding the chief executive that we need to take into consideration. And of course, that's one of the 
precepts of the Iroquois Confederacy's constitution, this seven generations principle that no major decision should be taken until seven generations hence have been considered. I love that idea. That just, I mean, it sounds so incredibly logical that it made me wonder, why aren't we doing that? How did we ever lose sight of that? Because the reward structures in our political and economic systems are completely blinkered. They're about, at most, maybe two-year cycles. Right. So we currently live in the Cenozoic era, in the epoch called the Holocene. And most of the epochs, when you look at that list, they lasted 100 million years or more. The Holocene only began 10,000 years, so we're in the beginning of something that can reasonably be expected to last a million years. But some people have proposed that we cut that short. And what do you think of that proposal to declare a new epoch, the Anthropocene? So the idea of the Anthropocene is that we have crossed the threshold into a new geologic moment where humans are agents of geologic change on par with things like volcanoes or river systems in the impact we can have on global systems. And to reflect that idea in the name that's proposed, Anthropocene, anthropo means human. I have two ideas about this. I, I use the term as a shorthand for that idea because it embodies all of that stuff. It's easier to say Anthropocene rather than the moment where we've crossed the threshold into blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. Whether it should actually be adopted formally by geologists as part of the geologic timescale is controversial. I don't really have skin in this game. But a lot of people are arguing rather vehemently about it on matters ranging from how exactly do we define it in the rock record. It would be hard to find a marker that would survive in ice today that would mark the beginning of the Anthropocene, which would be maybe a century or so ago. And then that's the other argument. Exactly when did the Anthropocene begin? Was it 1800 when the Industrial Revolution began approximately? Should we mark it with the detonation of the nuclear bombs of Hiroshima? Because there would be a worldwide layer, sadly, recording that in ice and maybe other sediments. Or is it 1960 when we can really see the beginning of the inflection point in atmospheric carbon dioxide. I have another argument about it or something I've been conflicted about when I think about the Anthropocene. It's just I really cringe at the idea of our naming an epoch for ourselves. It feels really narcissistic to think that we're the most important badass species on the planet. I've been reading this book about our microbiome and, and suddenly I was thinking, gosh, Bacteria are so much more successful than we are. They're more numerous, they're more impactful, and arguably even more interesting. They just don't happen to make art about their experience. I can see that. It's certainly not something to be proud of. <laughs> it's like the giant scarlet A we're wearing or something. I Yeah, it can be read that way, I suppose, but it doesn't seem like self-aggrandizement to me because the point is how much we've devastated the rest of the biosphere. But maybe we could come up with a a name that emphasizes the devastation and, and not us. But maybe there's also something about, I mean, the other epochs weren't necessarily about devastation, right? There are actually geologic periods named for other parts of the biosphere. One is oh, the okay. Cretaceous. So Cret in French means chalk. So Cretaceous basically means the chalk time. 
And that is a time when it was an unusually warm. We had essentially a, a higher concentrations of greenhouse gases. Sea level was very high. There was actually an interior seaway that covered the Great Plains states and even western Minnesota was on the shores of this inland sea. And all around the world, thick deposits of limestone in the form of chalk, which is really made of tiny microorganisms, mainly foraminifera, accumulated. So the, the, white, the white cliffs of Dover are from this time. And if you look at those under the microscope, the whole rock is biogenic. It's just tiny little shells. So that's one time that was named for another organism. <laughs> another would be the Carboniferous period is all about the lush forests that grew in the Carboniferous and then left the legacy of coal. So there are other oh, times right. that have we have named that's for nice the dominant players in the biosphere of the time. But I, I agree. Maybe it's just perpetuating this idea that we are the biggest and baddest and we should get over it. I also find something hopeful in the idea that the earth has gone through these things that are just major changes of the atmosphere, of the composition of the rocks on the earth, of everything, and that it has persevered and moved through these phases and moved into another phase, which was very, very different, but also interesting. There seems something gladdening about the resilience of the planet. I agree. And I think that there's too much emphasis placed on the idea of looking for hints of life in other places, because I think the really remarkable thing about life on Earth is its persistence. It might not have been that difficult for life to get started. What's really remarkable and difficult is keeping it going for 3.5 billion years through all kinds of upheavals. In your book, you compare sustaining life on Earth with what we know about Mars and Venus, the two planets closest to Earth. I was surprised to learn that the creation of life in the first place might not be so hard, and that it's the persistent, everyday, staying in balance part that is super tricky. Right. And of course, we haven't figured out exactly how life got to start, and there are many, many bifurcating hypotheses about that. But clearly, the raw ingredients for life are not that hard to come by. We've found many amino acids in meteorites. So some of the raw ingredients are kind of lying around available on the early Earth. And somehow, a self-perpetuating system called life got started. But Yes, to me, as I understand more and more about the Earth system, it really is remarkable that there's never been a time when life was extinguished from 3.5 billion years ago till now. And the idea that we could possibly terraform another planet, specifically Mars, and figure out how to balance all of these biogeochemical cycles in a way that could be sustained for any kind of long period of time is, is sheer hubris. It's a clear lack of understanding of the complexity of the Earth system to even suggest that. Also, just the idea of entropy. I think of how difficult it is just to keep a house clean and a household running smoothly. You know, you think you have all these systems in place and all these backup plans, but there are so many things that can enter into the system and derail it. Or a natural area. I'm in Chicago where we do a lot of natural area restorations and sometimes even recreations starting from scratch. And there are a gazillion things that can go wrong in the recreations. One plant takes over, maybe your intention is to improve the habitat, but then a bird species that you're trying to protect just ups and leaves. 
It's much easier to protect an ecosystem that already exists and has established its own equilibrium. People have forgotten these days about Biosphere 2, which was an experiment in the Arizona desert in the early 90s. North of Tucson, a, a wealthy oil baron <laughs> started it, and the idea was to see if you could establish a completely closed ecosystem on Earth as a prototype for something on Mars. And they did lock in six or eight people, and the idea was that they would stay there for a year, and they would grow their own food, and it would be a completely enclosed, biogeochemically balanced little world. They quickly realized that the oxygen levels inside the domed structure got down as low as 14%. People were feeling nauseated. They were cranky. <laughs> they started arguing with each other. They couldn't do their work. And no wonder they were suffering from the equivalent of altitude sickness. Finally, they had to be let out. And they found that they had put too much organic matter in the soil to the point where microbes were, were just munching away and releasing huge amounts of carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide was reacting with the concrete in the structure to the point that the structure was actually crumbling. This was a relatively small experiment. And lots of smart people who understood biogeochemistry worked on it and planned it. And it was in most ways, a complete failure. The facility still exists, and it's a great place to do experiments, but the idea that you could ever do this on a planetary scale is crazy. Right, and the idea if you were doing it in, on Mars instead of in Arizona, you can't just open up the hatch and walk out into exactly. the nice oxygenated air outside. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so, Marcia, I'm always interested to know from scientists, how did you get interested in the first place? Was there anything in your childhood that sort of set you up to have something that when you started to learn these ideas that they attached to something that was already within you? So I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and I was lucky to have a kind of free-range childhood. I was free to roam with kids in the neighborhood and my younger sister. And we were little natural scientists in some way. We would observe birds and seeds and berries and things, but I certainly never really imagined that I could go into science. I, I went to a fairly impoverished rural high school, did not have any particularly inspiring science teachers. Certainly none were women. <laughs> and so by the time I went to college, I guess I had sort of self-identified as someone more attracted to the humanities. I thank my lucky stars that I happened to take an introductory geology class my first term as a freshman. It was just a window into a new way of seeing the world. I do have one vivid recollection of being in first or second grade and seeing a black and white film of the Surtse volcano off the coast of Iceland. Um, that was a new island born, I think, in 1963. And we saw this film in school of the volcanic activity, shoots of steam and black ash spewing out of the North Atlantic. And I do remember having this visceral feeling of excitement about that. <laughs> but no one said, that's geology, that's something you could study. So I think I was receptive to these things without knowing it. And lucky me, I took geology and never looked back. Oh, it's so interesting how people find their way to something and how it almost seems like you could easily not have taken that class and be doing something totally different. What about the writing? So you're a wonderful writer. I am really impressed with just how well you bring these things to life. How would you describe your writing practice and how you got to the point of writing your two books? I want to give credit to my mother, who was an English teacher before 
she had a family. And so I grew up around books and literature and having an appreciation for good writing. Um, and I've always been interested in linguistics and word origins. <laughs> so again, to me, geology is like the ultimate source of information about how things came to be the way they are. So I think there was an appeal there. And then geology has this crazy vocabulary, which can be off-putting to a lot of people. It's, it is a barrier to entry to some degree. But I was as fascinated with the words used to describe rocks and geological phenomena as with the content itself, I think, early on. It's such a hodgepodge of words from many languages around the world. And so, to me, the vocabulary of geology is actually part of the attraction. So words were always a part of your practice, even your geologic practice. And you're also a mother. How does being a parent work its way in there? I wrote the first book after a period of personal difficulty. Um, I am a mother of three sons, and my husband had passed away a few years earlier. So I was struggling with single parenthood and just everything that goes along with it, the election of 2004 occurred, <laughs> feeling frustrated at the lack of public understanding of the environmental crises that we face. So I, I wrote the book partly as kind of a credo, what do I know to be true for myself, and also as a small act of protest against continuing denial of impending climate change and other environmental problems. But then the, the election of 2016 happened and I realized I just need to do something that is an act of catharsis to help me understand better our moment as a society. You know what I really hear in that and what I really like is I've been thinking about how the concept of saving the world is too large of a parameter, <laughs> um, but thinking about how people can use the strengths they already have to make a difference in one certain highly specific and important way and that if everybody did that and sort of stuck to their knitting on the thing that they were good at and made it a little bit better and shared it with a few more people, that maybe that's how the world changes? I think so. I, I would like to say that the subtitle of the book was not my idea. The subtitle of the book, though, for those of you who are listening, it's uh, Timefulness, How Geology Can Help Save the World. How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help okay. Save the World. And I... I made peace with the editor's suggestion of that subtitle because it's not saving the earth, it's saving the world, which means the world we have created for ourselves. So how could thinking like a geologist help save the world? The book is a lot about the past, but now, thinking about the future, if in the next 150 years geological literacy greatly increased, what difference might that make? We would prioritize geologic literacy from preschool onward, Geology would be understood to be a central science that everyone who lives on the earth should take and understand. Thinking like a geologist is about expanding our time frame, not seeing ourselves as the center of the cosmos, learning patience, understanding what lasts and what doesn't. And would our increase in knowledge, a change that would take place inside our brains and culture, physically affect the earth? A geologically literate society would immediately recognize that our carbon habits are so dangerous that we must stop now. We must enact, we must use the levers of the 
economic system, if we're going to stick with it, to control our appetites. I think we would be happier as people with a better sense of perspective and proportion. I agree with that. And in fact, when I was reading this book, I really did feel happier. I felt freer as if the world were a bigger place than I'd realized, and there was so much more to it than what I normally saw. For someone listening to this who's maybe not working on anything related to the earth or environment in their everyday life, maybe they're working on a social justice issue or improving public education or building a small business, or maybe they just had a baby, how does incorporating this way of thinking help them? How can it make them more effective? Well, I would argue that that sort of person who's working on social justice issues or education is thinking like a geologist because they're thinking over longer timescales. They're thinking about their legacy in the future and how they can give a gift to people they will never know. And they're doing geologic thinking even if they're not thinking about rocks. Right. I suppose they are. You're female and a mom, and in some cases, women scientists make discoveries in their chosen field by observing something male scientists had been blind to. That's more typical in the field of biology, but is there anything like that in geology that perhaps was obvious to you but to male colleagues had been invisible? Well, I do think that being a woman, especially a subdiscipline within geology, which is tectonophysics, that field in particular, especially when I was in in college and graduate school, it was very male-dominated. Often I had the sense that I was an almost an anthropologist observing this subculture that was very unlike me. So I was a good student, but I often had the feeling that I was kind of on the outside of this group. And I think that outsider's sense allows me to write for other people who are outside. So I think it's informed my writing and my teaching because I remember the feeling of not being invited into the room. Yes. And then there are just practical things that um, we would often be on long field trips and there would be no bathroom stops because everybody could just go out quickly in the woods. Right. <laughs> um, things like that that I am very mm -hmm. conscious of as a woman and I make sure that we're, we're not <laughs> making life difficult for half of the population. When you walk around the city of Appleton where you live, do you think you see things in your everyday life? slightly differently than other people do who don't have this mindset? Or is it kind of like when you're in your office, you're thinking this way, and then the rest of the time, you're just thinking about what's on sale at the grocery store? No, I mean, geology really is a way of seeing the world and reading the landscape. And just as once you learn to read, you can't really unlearn, you can't see text and not in some way read it. So to me, I walk to work or bike to work almost every day. I go down the river valley and I come back up the river valley. And I, I think, okay, this is the last 10,000 years of erosion after the glacial lake Oshkosh drained. This is the work of the rivers. I, you know, I kind of subliminally have that feeling as I'm physically either cycling or walking up and down the hill. <laughs> so what is it like for you? I think of the Midwest as being somewhat uh, geologically challenged in that most of uh, it's not a place where there are a lot of outcrops. It's not a place where a lot of rocks are on the surface. You speak in one of the books about a rock being like a portal. I was just in the southwest recently and in Santa Fe and Taos, and I was thinking about how somebody who lived on that land 8,000 years ago, if they were plunked down there, they could probably still find their way because there are those rock formations that would still look the same. And the Midwest just isn't like that. It's changed so much. Uh, so much is hidden and quiet. Is that hard for you to live here where time is so invisible? Hmm. But I think, 
it's unfair to say that we don't have an interesting geological story. In fact, Wisconsin in particular has a really long story. It is subtler. It's not exposed as dramatically with great topographic relief. But from north to south, east to west, we have a longer geologic story than the whole of the Grand Canyon. And many chapters, especially in northern Wisconsin, we can look in the rock record and see examples of every kind of tectonic setting on Earth today, ranging from rifting that would be analogous to, say, Iceland today, to convergent tectonics, a subduction zone like the Cascades, to hotspot volcanism like Yellowstone today. So a, a really a great variety of rocks, not as well exposed as we might like, <laughs> but um, the rock record is very rich and long. So I would argue that we are not geologically challenged, maybe topographically, <laughs> but not geologically. We have amazingly rich rock record of the Precambrian here. You are not at all bereft. No. You are happy. Yes. Do you think it's hard to be bored if you're a geologist? Yeah. I, I don't know how you, you... We will never run out of things to look at and mysteries to think about. Marsha, thank you so much. Thank you, Jill. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Dr. Marsha Bjornrud inspires you to view time in a new way and to explore the place where you live with new eyes for what the landscape may be saying. Next week, we'll be talking with David Allen Sibley, the author of a series of bird field guides that have sold over a million and a half copies. I've had the original Sibley Guide to Birds for 20 years, and I treasure it. David Sibley has a new book out about what it's like to be a bird. And I'll be talking with him about that and about what it's like to be him. His art practice, how he views the world, how he got his start. My father's an ornithologist. I can remember being four or five years old, and I liked to draw, and I liked nature and birds in particular. So I would look in my father's office and pull some big bird book off the shelf with big pictures and trace and copy the pictures of birds out of his books. Until then, Enjoy the deep time. The Shape of the World is about nature, cities, and people, and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to tell, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the prairie state of Illinois. You can find Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website, shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find out more about Marsha Bjornrud's work and a drawing of Marsha by the artist, Nicole Vihill, and much more. The Shape of the World's producer is Ralph Loza. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Marsha Bjornrud and to Lawrence University.